Welcome to The Bridge, a podcast exploring how we get to the future we really want. My name is Jared Michaels. I am a Zen priest, a psychotherapist, and a longtime student of this bridge. I am thrilled to be here with my friend and colleague Chris Searles and our guests as we try to build this bridge together. Welcome to the Bridge Podcast. I am Chris Searles, founder and director of biointegrity.net. In this podcast, we're exploring and collecting whole person, whole planet solutions to today's environmental crises. And we want to welcome, and we are really excited to welcome, Leah Sagan Shinraku. And I'm going to give a little bit longer of an introduction here. Again, welcome, Leah. I've known Leah for about 20 years, and she is like a sister to me. We started, uh, we met and started our relationship. That's not quite the right word for it. <laughs> we still, we became friends at Tassajara, um, which is a monastery in uh, Central California, a Zen monastery. And then we went to graduate school uh, in psychotherapy at the California Institute of Integral Studies together. We began running self-compassion groups as interns together, and she is still teaching self-compassion today. She's a psychotherapist in private practice in San Francisco. She's also the founder of the San Francisco Center for Self-Compassion, and she is just a true teacher although not in the way that I usually think of when I think of a teacher. I shared this introduction with her before I'm reading it now. And I, I said, here's the sentence, is that I'm not punk rock at all. So I may be using this phrase incorrectly, but I think it's accurate to say that she has a true punk rock spirit. And Leah endorsed that sentence. So when I think about my vision for how to build a bridge to a better future, I see us doing a great amount of both inner and outer work, and very few people can speak to the inner work as well as Leah. Today we'll be focusing on an important corner of the inner work, transforming our negative self-talk. Listeners might want to know that I already believe that transforming negative self-talk helps transform the world, but I'm very curious if Leah thinks so too, I'm guessing she does, but we'll see. So Leah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for the introduction. Yeah, we'll see how punk rock I uh, show up today. <laughs> I got to say for um, punk rock has one analogy. It certainly seems really fitting. Another one is that you're like a are you the person doing the visual art on the Instagram feed? I am. That's me. Yep. That's so beautiful. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that'll figure into what I was thinking about around negative self-talk too. So appreciate well, uh, you making that connection. Yeah. And actually, okay. So Jared had asked me if I could ask you to introduce the idea of self-talk and, and talk about what it is and how you came to care about it so much. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I imagine... Um, you all and most people, 
have some sense of it. Uh, it's basically uh, saying hostile things to yourself, criticizing yourself for making mistakes, being human, not being perfect, getting hooked into some distortion of, of reality, like I'm supposed to live up to this ideal, what's wrong with me that I'm not. Um, and I think most people are kinder to themselves than they are to, or kinder to others than they are to themselves. There's research to back that up as well. So I think it's something that most people know about, but I appreciate just giving a little definition. And then why, uh, why did I come to care about it so much? Well, firstly, it's personal because I struggled with a pretty intense inner critic for a long time. And I think it, it caused a, a, a lot of anxiety in my life and a lot of, um, I think it got in the way of, of closeness in relationships and also in personal relationships, but even in professional relationships of really being myself in those contexts as well. So I feel like it's kind of crippling, really. Then as a therapist, I see how it holds my clients back so much. The lack of self-trust, the amount of time and energy that gets caught up in either the swirls of thoughts or trying to make them go away or trying to figure them out. It just It, it, it just really can derail us from um, paying attention to the things that really matter to us and, and having the energy to take action on the things that matter to us as well. So, you know, I think most people, like, through the negative self-talk, most people see themselves as a lot more separate than they actually are from everything else. And negative self-talk is just one way that that, that uh I don't want to say manifests, but it, it's just sort of one emanation of that. I don't know. I don't know what the cause and effect is, but it's there right alongside the feeling separate. And um, the other one other little piece I thought of was, you know, in our uh, Zen practice, there's a chant or there are lots of chants, but there's one chant that ends with saving all beings, essentially, that being um, the the prayer, I suppose. And for a long time, I didn't, I didn't get the fact that all beings included me I, I just thought of it mm. as all other like saving saving all other beings um not including myself so it took some time to get there and realize it's not a zero-sum game that um it's not it's not one or the other it's it's uh all can i follow through on that jared please because I actually, I was going to mention that I've been, um, you know, indulging is a better word than cramming in terms of getting to know Lee's, Leah's material over the past uh, few days and really, really enjoying it. And so Leah, I wanted to ask you, and it, it struck me when you said um, that this tendency to be self-critical that, that you have been working through and now counseling on and so forth, um, that it got in the way of closeness in all kinds of relationships, professional and personal and yet when I listen to some of the meditations on the, on, the, on the website, I'm just blown away by the detail inside the experience. And I think each of you, if I may compliment you both real quick, have this gift of sort of singing through um, the, the tradition of probably Buddhist schooled meditation. So in other words, it's like a, it's like a song when I listen to these meditations that you guys do. And I really appreciate that. But 
in addition to that, inside of that, the detail of the sort of awareness, the physical awareness, the, all this connectivity. And I was thinking, man, I wonder if Leah, as a child, had a sense of, you know, these profound um, sort of experiences in the present. You know, maybe you were extremely sensitive in a number of ways and how you see that interacting with your self-talk. And, and also, can you give an example of um, negative self-talk? Sure. Okay. So two parts. I think I'll tackle the second part first, just because it's more, um, I think, just uh, bullet points. But so examples of negative self-talk, really, it's, you could say it's core beliefs, and then the, the thoughts that come out of certain core beliefs. So core beliefs, like, uh, there's something wrong with me. Um, I'm dumb. I don't know how to do anything right. Um, I'm too much, I'm not enough, I'm a disappointment, I'm unlovable. And then all the thoughts that a person would have if they believe that. And that'll just come up. I mean, we, most of us, I think, have some negative core belief that we're grappling with all the time and um, thoughts that, that come from that belief. So that's the sort of thing that, that I'm meaning. And then, gosh, beautiful question about my life as a child. Um, let's see, certainly have always been very sensitive uh, some of my closest friends growing up were trees um, and uh, really felt that they were my teachers. Like I would sit, there's, my grandparents had a, a, an, un, like an undeveloped little plot that a house could have been built on, but instead there was a stand of trees. And uh, they grew with this open space in the middle. And as a kid, I would just go there and hang out. I was an only child. So I just go there and hang out with the trees. Who knows what I absorbed? Plenty, I'm sure, um, from them. Um, but two, you know, the sensitivity then extends to difficult experiences. So I think, um, you know, the trees were super resourcing. And then there were lots of other complicated, challenging things that I dealt with in my childhood. And so there's a blend of sensitivity to what's hard um, that I think contributed to some of the negative uh, core beliefs and self-talk and then the resourcing of um, the trees and just a, a sensitivity to uh, the resources around me in, in people and in the natural world. So I think both. But I appreciate the question. Yeah, well, I've appreciated the meditations and I'm going to continue going through because I'll say one other thing and then pass over to Jared. I have really gotten a lot out of them in, in the past few days and They've come at a really good time, and this is kind of an area I'm loosely familiar with, um, or you know, but I, I certainly haven't really focused on. And um, it just has deepened my appreciation for the the whole sphere of what can be done out of this. I think out of this Buddhist tradition. And so, you know, again, thank you both for connecting me there. Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks for for listening. And I will say too, many of the meditations that you'll find on my site are from the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. So they're my um, version of meditations that come from that program, which was developed by Krista Neff and Chris Germer. There are some on there that are my own too, but I've noted which ones come from them. Okay. Thanks. Sure. Um, so just uh, listening and being in this conversation, just the responses started stockpiling. So I'm gonna to try to share all of them in no particular order. One is just how special it is to get to be in this conversation with you, Leah. 
and you too, Chris. It's just, but I just, just to, I haven't like witnessed you so much as a teacher. And it's, it's really um, wonderful to see you like bloom, you bloomed. You guys were colleagues at Tulsa Friends, friends, friends buddies, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Zen students. You um, sort of came up together. Along. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, we actually um, share the, shared the same Zen teacher. So we were in this like little Dharma family. Pod. Yeah. And anyway, now we're part of multiple of the same lineages, like the psychotherapy lineage. Anyway, um, it's really special. And, spe and another response I had was that it's not, I really don't, think it is just a Buddhist um, a, a Buddhist lens. I think of it as like a as a like a wisdom lens that is shared by many, many traditions and secular folks too. Yeah, I agree, Jaron. Glad you said it because I think that's true. And and while that is, you know, I I don't know exactly what I identify as anymore, to be honest, but I think Zen is the nearest you know, to what I could say is, is, and certainly, you know, I did receive the precepts and, and lay ordination. So yes. And I think it definitely extends. And I've never been one that spends a lot of time with texts. You know, I've always been one that's more in direct experience. Yeah. I'm glad you said that as well. Cause as soon as it came out of my mouth, I knew what I was saying was, I don't know any other way to singularly point at this, mm -hmm. but yeah. No, in, it, it's, it's true decision. that in, in Buddhism, there's a, it's much more uh, center stage than this wisdom is more center stage than in many other traditions. Mm -hmm. And it's also, it's really, it just, I agree. One more response is that I agreed with you with exactly how you mapped it, you know, with the, with these, with the negative self-talk at root coming from these core negative beliefs and how there, there are these manifestations of them. It could, it could, go in any old direction. And I appreciate how you brought in how, how there's a, I don't know, maybe like a chicken and egg thing with believing we're separate and then believing these core negative beliefs. Anyway, I just wanna share all those responses and I wanted to, and if you wanna to respond to any of the responses that's welcomed, but if not, I wanted to, to segue into this question of how do we, transform our negative self-talk yeah yeah i'm happy to um to take a bite out of that one um it's a big question uh i i think as with any kind of transformation probably no comes as no surprise what my initial response is which is we have to just notice that it's even happening and for a lot of people um this was the case for me for a long time it doesn't even register that this is a thing that's going on. It just seems like this is this is this is how reality is. This is air quotes normal. So noticing it even like recognizing, okay, wait a minute, look, what did I just say to myself? What what is this thing? So mindfulness, whatever way you can practice that and start bringing attention to what's actually going on, slowing down, noticing, externalizing, writing down some of the thoughts that you have, if you notice that you're having them. And then, gosh, 
it's why I teach about self-compassion because I think that it, this isn't an easy, it isn't an easy answer for how we transform the negative core belief because some of them are so deeply rooted. Um, and I think sometimes there are different ways that they can come, right? Sometimes it comes from a really harsh early caregiver, let's just say, who said these things to us about ourselves and we believe them because what else, are, we don't know, you know, we believe the authority that's saying these things. And so we can, we can develop this sense of, of uh, defectiveness or, you know, there's this thing that's wrong with me or I should be different. Um, I think there's another thing that can happen, which is, you know, growing up, we're never going to get all of our needs met, no matter how perfect our parent is, it's just not going to happen because our parents are humans too. And I believe and have found in working with people that it seems to be the case that when we don't get our needs met, this thing happens where, because we don't understand how life works as little ones, we get this belief. I don't even know that it's a belief belief, but we get this understanding in our bodies that if I could just be different, I would get what I needed. So the problem is with me. Um, it's, we, we can't let in the possibility that this person who's supposed to take care of us might have limitations, you know, that would kind of just destroy our world. So, oh, it's me. If I could just be different, I would get that thing and not even thing like I'd get the attention that I want or need or whatever. So we make, we make ourselves the problem. And I think that happens for pretty much everybody to some extent, that there's some unwinding of that, that needs to happen before we can be in reality. Uh, I think when, when we have those experiences and develop those beliefs, I think of it as like, um, we're wearing like a virtual reality headset, basically. And we, we see everything through that. We actually think that that's, that that's what's going on. So to transform it, you have to notice it. When you notice it, you have a chance to do something else, to try something else, to even question like, oh, is there another way to look at this situation? Huh, um, might there be another understanding? If I could put this in front of my best friend or the Dalai Lama or somebody who I know is a compassionate being toward me, how would they see it? Would they say these things to me? Oh, what if I said something more along those lines to myself? Does that feel like, like that might be true too? You, you know, just to, to try and loosen it up because there's such a tight grip uh, that these beliefs can have on us. And it's because I think they form when we're so small. They, they feel like they're in us on a cellular level and we almost don't know what life is without them. But it, it really is virtual reality that we're in when that is what we're operating from. I love that analogy, the, the virtual reality has, headset. I think that's really effective. Thanks, yeah, it's, it feels really true. And I've heard like from students and clients when they think of it that way, they, they know what I'm talking about. They know when they've right. taken it off. They know and when they're, they're actually... watching a movie instead yeah. of in the moment. Yeah. And when you were talking about unwinding, what happens a little bit later down in the process after the mindfulness? Like how does that, how does this unwinding? Yeah. Well, what's, what's the middle part? The middle part would be turning toward yourself with kindness and that can look an infinite number of ways. You know, there's no one way to be kind. It's not always like a hug. Um, it's, it's getting really good or 
good enough about asking yourself that core question of self-compassion, which is what do I need? And then making your best guess about what the answer is and then experimenting and then seeing what happens and paying attention, pay attention, experiment, see what happens. And in, in teaching my class that I'm teaching now, I came across this, it's from neuroscience, just like the stages of learning. And it's basically effort, mistake, <laughs> reflection, uh, refinement of strategy, trying again. So mistake is built in. So it's not like, oh, you're supposed to get it right. That's not learning. <laughs> learning is trying, uh, making a mistake, reflecting, and trying again. And just one more question. Where does spirituality or meditation, where does that fit into this? Well, for a lot of people, the meditation part is the place where the mindfulness gets gets cultivated. I think for me, it's also the the field where the compassion got cultivated. Just showing up for me every day on the cushion, showing up for myself no matter what, no matter how I felt, not in a rigid way, but just in a, a I can't explain why. You know this story shared that I meditated just by myself for five years because I thought I wasn't a real Buddhist <laughs> and that I didn't know what I was doing and that only real Buddhists are supposed to go to the Zendo. It's absurd, but here we are. I mean, this is what I mean about the negative self-talk and it wasn't even negative self-talk. It was just energy. It was like, yeah, I don't belong there. Like, that's not, that's not me. I'm just doing this, this little thing. I don't know all the bows and you know, all the things you're supposed to do. And if I go in there that way, not knowing what I'm doing, um, I'm going to disrespect the practice. So I'm just going to sit in my room by myself. I'm going to go to Tassajara and sit in my room <laughs> and not go to the Zendo. <laughs> so yeah, but doing that. And then I think talking to an actual person, talking to a priest there during work period, the, the year before we met, I think you were there, but I didn't, I didn't know you then. Um, and learning like, oh, it was uh, uh, Greg Fain said, you know, well, don't let, I said, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't think I should go in the Zendo. And he said, well, you know, don't let that stop you. None of us know what we're doing. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I did, but it was there. It was there um, on the cushion and in community, honestly, that that um, started to grow and tapping mm -hmm. into, um, you know, being in the presence of, of people who have compassion as a core value, be that as teachers or fellow students. It's, it's, a, it's an environment that starts to feed that inside of us. That's how it worked for me. Mm. Um, just, I just wanted to add, I, th I think everything you just said about meditation and community was beautiful. Just for, for me, I would just want to add that um, I found um, clarity about who I really am in meditation. And that help me see through the beliefs, help me know the difference between the beliefs and the, and the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was the case for me 
though I think the clarity was longer coming and, and it wasn't just through meditation that the clarity came for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was through practice, uh, other practices as well, mm -hmm. um, and relationships with people too. For sure. I do. Yeah. Ditto. It wasn't just meditation for me too. Chris, please. Yeah, I, I have a couple of questions and, um, and then there's actually a sort of a follow-up question, but another thing back to your, you know, your meditations on the, the website, um, the physicality of the practice, it just really struck me again that the, in the meditation practice that a lot of what it's about is letting the body kind of be, if not the judge, sort of the, the conductor of the, the train that's going, okay, so where's my self-talk coming from or you know, it's the, maybe the access point that you feel tension in your body, or you know you feel uncomfortable, any number of physical symptoms, or, you know, as best shown in meditation, your breathing is shallow, trying to get to a better place. So I wondered if you could comment on some of that in whatever way, because it really strikes me as this powerful thing that we're also not aware of. You're talking about uh, coming into awareness of negative self-talk. This, uh, this physical awareness, I think, is so powerful right now. Absolutely. And, um, the body is uh, the the body. I, I think we've got it reversed. You know, we've got a, our our bodies have so much wisdom and intelligence, and we're used to bossing our bodies around rather than listening. And the body exists in one place in time. Our breath exists in one place in time, and our minds can take us all over the place. So if we can come back to the body, we can come back into presence, really, if we can get here and not uh, get caught up in the stories we have about what's happening, but just really noticing, okay, like um, my chest, it feels like there's a lava lamp in there. Huh, interesting. I wonder like what that's about. Uh, and just staying with it, letting the body lead. And um, I think it, it, the good news is too, it's always with us. Same with the breath. It's it's these ways that we have to to come back to the here and now that can really cut through. You know, if we're paying attention to to anything really um, in the physical world, there's a lot less room for any kind of negative self talk or judgment or criticism or anything like that. Yeah, I I would love to go on and on about that body intelligence uh, kind of area, but I have, maybe we'll come back to it because I know it's an area that Jared is expert and interested, interested in as well. On the physical level, I'm wondering if, if you guys, you, you know, can talk a little bit about shame in its, its power to limit people from sort of becoming, you know, more full of themselves and why it's so prevalent in humanity. Because I assume that in your studies of Eastern philosophy, as we call it, you encountered plenty of Eastern Buddhists who were dealing with their shame from a completely different cultural context than the kind of shame that someone who grew up watching the Dukes of Hazard might have, you know, about body issues in our uh, Western world and any number of things that are specific to kind of this, this type of culture here. So it seems like shame is a really pervasive human issue and, and self-compassion is a way to get beyond that. But I don't know if that's true or not. So I'm sort of putting that out there for discussion. Uh, gosh, mm. so, <laughs> so shame. So a really cool thing that I learned about shame 
um, from Chris Germer, who's um, one of the, the folks that developed the Mindful Self-Compassion course, is this thing he says, which is shame is an innocent emotion. And, you know, it's super uncomfortable, but it comes from this desire to be loved, which is kind of the most basic thing that we have as humans. I think we all want to be loved. We want to belong. Um, we want to know that we're accepted. And so it's the combination of that need to be loved, but the belief that there's something about us that's going to make that impossible. It's, wow. it's so uncomfortable, right? If, if that's what we believe, it can, it can come up for any of us. It's, it's just sort of there waiting to be triggered. And it's very sticky too, because if we're having an experience and shame gets involved in it in any way, the emotions associated with it are going to feel really uh, dreadful. There's just going to be a lot of dread um, mixed in. Self-compassion really is the antidote to shame, but it's complicated because um, it's not simply a question of like, oh, I feel shame. I'm going to be kind to myself. Like, you, you know, you, you, you all, your podcast is called The Bridge. Well, like, how do I get from a shame spiral to being kind to myself? Like, you know, does not, does not compute. So first of all, I think it's recognizing that shame is universal. We're not alone. If we feel shame, we're going to think that we're alone. Like that's the thing that we think, right? We're alone and we're going to be alone because there's something about us that's unlovable. But the reality is everybody feels that way sometimes. And some of us feel it more often than others. And if we've had really challenging experiences in childhood, we're more likely to, to really struggle with it. And I think if we are from a... Uh, non-white communities <laughs> and non-straight communities were more likely to struggle with it. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a piece too, for sure. Um, why do we struggle with it so much? Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you that. Why do you all think yeah. it's so prevalent, this condition of the mind, you know, or the, or the body even? Well, I think some of it is that we have, uh, excuse me, we have a way of getting our sense of identity and self-esteem from conditional places. And that's how it is in mainstream culture, right? Like I know who I am because of the things that I have or the things that I've done or the way I'm perceived by other people. That's how I know that I'm good. And um, the minute or the moment, one of those sources of self-esteem gets um, shaken in any way it's devastating we feel like we don't like we're nothing you know without that and so we we have we're identified with um these things that aren't really our sources of self-esteem that, that it's not again it's it's more of the virtual reality headset in, in from a different angle but we're not seeing that um unconditional identity and and sense of of self that we can have that is trans-situational so that's a big, a big ask. It's kind of heavy lifting. It gets into, um, I mean, I think it gets into el elements of, of spirituality for sure, you, you know, but it's also, I think it's also just uh, being aware that we can't know everything about ourselves. That, that honestly, I think this, this idea of knowledge is power 
is, I think, incredibly important and also incredibly um, misleading for some people because knowledge is power, but that doesn't mean that uncertainty is powerlessness, that they coexist, like mystery coexists with knowledge and we need both. And so I think people get really uncomfortable with uncertainty. And I think a lot of shame comes up around not knowing because they think they're supposed to know. And if they don't, it's a failing. So I've been focusing on the environmental crisis for quite a while. And at this stage, I kind of visualize like a silicon wafer, like the, the makeup of a person's empowerment or ability to get out and do the things they believe should be done in society, whatever they are, environmental or not. There's all these little slivers of layers that, you know, like a 3D printer that make up the, the emotional landscape inside a person. And that, you know, if those... I mean, obviously, if those layers are, are not super energized um, and feeling empowered that trying to take on things that seem, you know, uh, at first glance impossible or way bigger than you is untenable. And so I, I, it's like I'm receiving a lot of the information from each of you in that way of, you know, just so many intricacies to the way the wafer is um, printed, as it were. Mm -hmm. So in what ways do you see the transformation of negative self-talk in a person helping the environmental crisis in particular? Well, like you just said, I think the environmental crisis, um, I mean, all the many crises of life right now are so intersectional. So, I mean, I just want to say that to start that they're all interconnected and um, gosh, if we can uh, have any hope of facing them and, and actually engaging with them with our creativity and our ability to respond rather than re react, then we need to um, not have all of our energy and time caught up in thinking about what horrible people we are, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> and, and be able to instead say, okay, these things happened, I'm complicit in these things, I'm working to learn and, and do things differently. But if I keep getting caught up in what an awful person I am, I continue to be complicit in the things. So whether that's um, working with the environmental crisis or anti-racism or whatever else, uh, they, they're, all, <laughs> they're all interconnected any, really. So I, I think recognizing um, how much energy is bound there in, in negative self-talk and in self-criticism and um, how it limits our ability to create. We need to be super creative <laughs> and think super creatively to meet these challenges and we need to all be doing it. Um, so that's how I see it connected. It's not like, ooh, let me, um, let me extinguish my negative self-talk so I can sit and eat candy all day. You know, like that's not my vision. It's we need our full selves to be brought to bear uh, for all of these things. And um, I was going to say, I think too, we need to listen to lots of different voices of lots of different people who are thinking about lots of different things creatively. And, um, you know, I recently, I've been reading a, a lot of different things lately, and um, I don't know if you all are familiar with this book, Emergent Strategy, 
by um, yeah, Adrian Marie Brown. But Jared, Jared's not Jared on his head. Yes, but um, I am. you know, I, I'm really wanting to listen um, to uh, voices of Black women primarily because I think they are very familiar with uh, having to face uh, situations that are insurmountable and continuing to show up with creativity and um, imagination and resilience and um, to not. Uh, you know, I, I, mean, I have no idea about anyone else's inner life, but um, I'm finding inspiration in, 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 uh, and finding um, just like, she's putting words to things that I believe and hadn't put words to in that way and really respect that. And especially around creativity and imagination. And um, there was a quote she had from somebody else, something like, you know, we have to make the, re the revolution irresistible. And so, we we have to be it's not like oh how how fun to deal with in, environmental degradation but to get people involved i think there has to be some spirit of aliveness and creativity and um like a desire to want to do things not from a place of shame and fear but from like uh wanting to support life and wanting to co-create with our other humans, you know, the world that we want. So, um, yeah, I think it's all intertwined. I, uh, I really love that, um, irresistible. We have to make it irresistible. Yeah. Yeah. Just wondering if you can paint, paint an irresistible picture or like some of an irresistible picture, like what, like how, like what, what's like, or another way to talk about is like, like, like imagine we're in like a um, brainstorming session for like the PR team for an environmental or social justice, social justice like organization. Like, how do we make it like alive and fun and 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 nourishing rather than scary? Well, you know, it, it's kind of what I'm doing on my my uh, Instagram feed that Chris is pointing to. It's taking, um, I don't know, I just got this idea to do it like a few days before the beginning of April, but just taking poems that are specifically, uh, in my mind, related to self-compassion and being kind to ourselves um, and illustrate them in a way that draws people in and makes them fun that, um, I mean, I'm drawn in by words on a page for sure, but um, I think the culture that we live in right now, people people are drawn in by visuals and they're drawn in by things that are easily digestible and that hit them emotionally. And I think that's I, I think that's where it has to come. I think it's art. Mm. But, and I have a friend um, who uh, is a co-director of the Center for Artistic Activism. So they do all kinds of actions all over the world and train um, <clears throat> teams of activists to do things in, involving art because it gets people's attention, it hits them in an emotional way and it, it, it can engage them. And I think that that's, that's the way in, in my mind. And it's why, um, you know, I think that's, that's the direction I've been heading in, in is in a more um, creative poetry art-based direction because I'm finding that I'm connecting with like-minded people and not through um, 
analysis and, you, you know, uh, uh, debate or anything like that, but just like, wow, this really moved me. I can tell that you understand things that I understand or want to understand better. And that um, I really enjoy engaging that way too. So it's a win-win. What comes to me as you're talking is like, if it's irresistible to you, you know, share it. Totally. Well, this is what I learned as a, as a, a summer camp counselor back in the 90s, which was, you know, if I was engaged with what the project we were doing, the kids were engaged. If I wasn't, it was mass chaos. And so like, <laughs> I, had to, I had to find activities that I wanted to do too. And then we could all sit around and, you know, make bracelets and whatever, but uh, I had to, I had to be present. Well, just another, what comes up for me is like, like solutions. Like I love solutions to share solutions. Um, Chris, Chris is on his, in his, for his company, he, what do you, every, every week, it's like what the world's number one solution. I love that. And I just imagine it with, with art, you know, beautiful and uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it would hit hard or hit well. Well, I, I think too, it, when, when something involves art, um, there is an emotional component. It's, there's a relational component. And I think that's also what we need. Um, part of what is problematic about our current culture on so many levels is how transactional everything is. So um, I think it's important in the changes that um, you all are talking about and wanting to make that things are relational. And just putting facts in front of people isn't super relational. So finding a way to engage them um, and, and engage them as humans from a place of your humanness too. Um, and I don't know that there's a blueprint for that. I think it's different for each person that it, 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 to come from an authentic place from e in, in each person, that that's, um, that, that seems to be the way that those connections are made. And um, I think this is a really critical point too, the, the um, relational versus transactional, you know, the humanizing each other rather than turning each other into, um, you know, commodities, essentially, to be exploited for our own ends, you know, um, that we're respecting, respecting all the people too, that you're talking to, that they're humans, you know, that have their perspective and point of view and hmm. a dialogue, I think. Um, hmm. I love that. I, I think you're totally right. Um, yeah, that point for me has been one of the big growing points of the last few years is really understanding that, you know, life itself is about relationships, the miracle of existence, the miracle of staying alive, and so on and so forth, that everything in the, the biosphere, as it were, and, and, and nature and all that is relational, not transactional. Yes. And um, I, I like that terminology a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's something that I think encapsulates a lot for me and I know it when I feel it, you know, if something is transactional or if it's relational and if it's transactional, um, I, I, I don't move closer, I move further away. There's a lack of dialogue for one thing. I mean, it's a really good word to associate with it as well, that there's, 
it's give and take in a relational sense. There's not, you know, here's, here's one thing, you give me my thing now, see you later. Like on amazon.com, it is, um, you know, very much about this kind of co constant uh, dynamic reality that you're in the moment with. Yes. And um, yeah, I just find all that so beautiful and inspiring. And, and um, I'm looking for ways to try and help people see that vision or feel that feeling of like, oh, you know, I get it. We're just inside of a big relational paradigm here instead of a transactional paradigm. I think that's a really good place to kind of evolve from, to come into awareness um, for self-compassion and other things from. I uh, was reading my kids this um, book called Water Protectors, and just it, it's a Native American book. And <clears throat> uh, there's a image of the earth and, you know, the like the, the family of all all relations. You know, there's a image of a person and like a penguin and a bear, you know, all around the earth, just like in relationship together. I think that this this paradigm shift is re is really important. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. another, if I may say one other thing, Leah. There, there's another big piece um, for me back to the biophysicality part that the um, the literal physical makeup of other organisms is the composition of the life support system. You know that and the behaviors. And we've had these radical changes in the last fifty years, in particular, as population and development have overtaken the the natural ecosystems of the planet. And um, we've been talking about chemical changes in the atmosphere and in the oceans, but we haven't been talking about physical changes to the ecosystems of the planet, that there are you know, fewer old growth forests and fewer coral reefs. And that has um, a dramatic impact on the composition of this, the whole system. And um, yeah, so I, I guess I'm looking for some bridging there between the, the, the self-awareness of, of ways that we separate ourselves from others this negative, this core belief of negative self-talk idea. And, and we've talked about this previously in conversations we've had on interconnectedness, the idea, the Christian idea of sin really being about disconnectedness. So trying to come into understanding of, you know, our, at this stage of the game, it seems like a lot of us have this fundamental disconnectedness from nature, to say the least, from the, the reality of the life support system. We don't really recognize the physicality and the physical experience that other creatures are having. So like you're talking about spending time with trees and then being your best friends. I'm sure you can relate to this as well that, you know, you have, um, you know, an empathy at least for the physical experience of a tree. You think about it on a cold day or, in, or through the drought, or how does it deal with all that sunlight? You know, it's so sunny here all day long. How does the tree deal with all that? And, if you, when you start to compare your physical experience to that of a different species or another human being in your life or another human being on the other side of the world, you'll never know. To me, it's a really um, powerful way to get grounded in this environmental awareness. So I don't know if that, if that can lead us anywhere also for, for comments, but um, you know, again, back to the breath and meditation and all that, to me, these things are all going together. Totally that. And I think too, um, I've been, you know, we're, we're talking now in April, it's National Poetry Month, and I've been focused on poetry and so many of the poems, I mean, poems, uh, metaphor is, poetry is metaphor, right? And you're, essentially, that's, that's not exactly what you're saying, but I think that that is a way, that is an entry point, you know, for someone to understand 
the experience of a tree, let's just say, like poets write about, about that um, in a way that I think helps people understand. And um, I, I do think that's a gateway and it's, it's enjoyable. You, you know, people enjoy, I think people get, I, I get messages from people saying how it really impacted them and, and it reminded them of something they had forgotten and things like that. So I think, again, some kind of emotional, creative, metaphoric uh, entry point is also useful you know, meditation and, and the body, yes. But then just kind of, the thing I love about poetry too is like, it's truth. Like they're they're always pointing at a truth. Any, any poem that you're gonna like, you're liking it because it's pointing to something true and it's doing it in a way that um, isn't just like, here are all the stats, you know? And so I think that is, is very um, moving for people and, um, so I think that's that's a way to think about it as well through again like through through art through something that's going to get people on an emotional level but not like hit them so hard that then they sometimes I think people get overwhelmed <laughs> understandably so by the realities and they don't want to look um, so I think it's um, finding a way to get them to look and feel and then to me um, you can cope with the negative self-talk. You can have you can have um, compassionate self-talk as a resource, so that when the grief does come up around um, the environment, around uh, like our history of slavery in this country and genocide and everything else, that you can have that like, yeah, that's true. I can't collapse and what do I? I don't want to collapse in shame, and I also don't want to deny that that's reality. So if I stay here, I'm going to need some resource to um, to uh, meet those intense feelings. And then if I can do that and stay present, there's a chance that I could do something differently. You know that I can be in reality with these other people who live with the legacy of legacy and ongoing. Um, effects of all of this. So I think it's um, coping with the negative self-talk through self-compassion is it's a resource for meeting all kinds of um, difficult uh, truths about being uh, alive right now. That's really well said. Yeah, it is. You know, when you were, Chris, when you were talking before about the, the wafer, the multi-leveled wafer. I was thinking yeah. about, I was, <clears throat> I, sometimes I imagine a literal bridge um, as we are doing this podcast and the different levels of it. And I see it. Um, I see this, um, this self-compassion piece being like a very, like a foundational layer of this whole, of the whole bridge. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I, and I see it going all the way to the other side. Yeah, I don't see another way, you know. Uh... Yeah, the, you know, it strikes me uh, kind of all the time right now, like, what are, what is, how did we get some of this stuff so wrong, the, the sort of design of civilization? And specifically the, um, I mean, I, I, I recognize that I'm sitting here in a beautiful room with incredible technology and I just had a great lunch and I finished a warm cup of coffee about 30 minutes ago and I 
I enjoy uh, all the things that civilization delivers to those of us who have privileges to enjoy them. But at the same time, I've um, been watching The Crown and been thinking about wealth injustice as the structural means to establish society, the sort of the idea of the strong man and that, that heartless um, thing that comes from kind of a, a kingdom-based economics where the people at the very, 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 very top just hold on to everything and, and don't solve the problems in society that are going on. But when you look sort of at the, the kind of environmental crisis, we're here because a lot of people don't have compassion for those who are suffering. So self-compassion seems like this is, this is kind of an answer to the, the paradigm of a, of a dominating structure for society being the, the fundamental organizing tool. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that or not. Yeah, there's a real problem with hoarding, you know, of hoarding of, of resources that has happened. I don't have an answer for why uh, it has developed that way. Um, you know, it, it seems like there's a tremendous amount of unprocessed trauma in our longstanding history you know, um, even prior to the United States forming, you, you know, there's tremendous trauma in Europe as well and all over the place. And I think the legacy of that is some of these reactive hoarding responses to things. So I, I suspect trauma has a role in why things are the way that they are, un, unacknowledged, unprocessed, unintegrated trauma. I think that's why. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, in, um, in Kristen Neff's book, Self-Compassion, she has this nice chart that lists like all the qualities of self-esteem and all the qualities of self-compassion and self-esteem. It, it's all the, the one of my students calls it the comparadigm, like when you're stuck comparing yourself to other people. So hierarchies, where am I on that? And all that stuff. And I'm only good if I got this grade or this award or make this amount of money or, have this many whatevers. Um, and then on the self-compassion side, it is, I'm intrinsically worthy. Um, you know, I don't need to know everything. I can be in touch with the mystery of life. And, um, you know, I, I have qualities about myself that I appreciate and I have qualities about myself that are harder. I'm, I'm a human. There's inherent dignity in being an imperfect human, all that stuff. And I do think, again, it's, um, trauma <laughs> trauma is at work here you know un unprocessed trauma and um, I think that's part of of the self-compassion piece and uh, another thing I'll say which I don't think is too much of a tangent but you know when people are learning to be kinder to themselves in classes or even out in life inevitably they're going to have um, some kind of a backlash because they're not used to being kind to themselves and it feels weird and it probably reminds them of times when they weren't kind to themselves and or times when other people weren't kind to them and so it, it can feel bad to be kind to ourselves sometimes and um, uh, Kristen Neff and Chris Germer call this a backdraft it's like what happens when a fire has been burning in like a closed up structure and then the firefighters come and they bust down the door or the windows to try to put out the fire, but it's been deprived of oxygen. And so as soon as they bust it open, all the oxygen rushes in and it flares up in a major way. 
in service of being put out, you know, that happens. And a similar thing happens when we're in a process like this of looking at um, painful things, wanting to be kinder to ourselves, being kinder to ourselves. And then there's this other stuff that can come up. So just, I don't know, that seems relevant in some way, just that the, the, the process of having self-compassion be part of this bridge is not um, like everything in my mind, linear. It's not linear. It's not like, oh, okay, we're going to be kind to ourselves. And like, that's going to be smooth sailing, you know, because probably not so much. <laughs> well, there's another word. Um, this is my last comment, my last freewheeling comment. Um, there's another word that you use quite a lot in the meditations that I've listened to that also talks about this idea of being kinder or learning to be kind to ourselves that it just struck me. It meant so much to me. Tenderness, because that seems to be an you know, the antithesis of where civilization often is or society is and so forth. Um, and it just, the, the, the most recent meditation I listened to, you talk about the, I think often in the meditations, putting your hand on your own body so you can feel self-soothing but doing it from the standpoint of how you would soothe a loved one, a pet or a child or you know, whoever, someone that you really care deeply about, you feel like they're very vulnerable and you wanna help them to be soothed first and foremost, doing that for yourself, applying tenderness to your own body, those concepts to me are just like, wow, you know, this is, um, this is so missing and so accessible. So thank you for that. And, you know, I don't know if either one of you want to comment on that. The power of that. Yeah, it's right there, you know, and doing that physical soothing touch, it, it stimulates the release of oxytocin. So there's, there's chemical component too. Um, and it's real and it is accessible. And I think we think about things fractally or like microcosm, macrocosm. It's like, if we want to take care of the world, then, um, take care of our, like, if we're tender toward this microcosm of the planet right here, you know, it, it um, entrains us, I think, to be kind to the macrocosm of the planet, too, that it's, it, it, it reflects that it can. I think it entrains us, and it also, there's a, there, there's a, um, like a spontaneous and automatic relationship between the micro and the macro, like it, it itself transforms the macro. Yes, it is it. Right. Yeah, I agree. Like, um, I often think about this one uh, friend of mine who has an eating disorder and I just see as she heals from it, she's writing articles, She's, she's becoming a, a teacher, uh, you know, a, a, she's a therapist and she's, she's a specializes in eating disorders. And she's just, you know, really, she's kicking ass people. She's more and more people are coming to her. It's just, it's, you can see her transforming the culture. Yes. Yes. Well, speaking of transforming culture, this, this final question here is actually my favorite question that we wanna ask each of our guests. And the idea is, you know, what does the world in the future look like if we get everything right? We, you know, a world without negative self-talk issues. 
sort of what would that be like? What are the kinds of things that come to mind either in your personal life or in the, you know, the grandest of schemes anywhere in between? Well, you know, it's funny what comes to mind more, um, more, uh, David Bowie's more princes, more Jimi Hendrix's more, um, just like wild in the best possible way. Um, people, um, inter, acting and connecting and in life-affirming ways. I don't know if you all, have you all seen the, um, there's something we can put in the show notes. There's an image that's like the, um, the most up close image of a single cell that has been taken through various technologies. And it's the trippiest thing. I mean, it looks like something super psychedelic and yet, like this is a this is one cell, you, you know, of of a uh, human body. Yeah, of the human body cell. Um, and so, look at that. That is what. <laughs> that is the world I imagine. This like fun, like I don't know, where people get to express themselves rather than boss themselves around and um, have room for other people expressing themselves rather than trying to boss other people around. And with, um, with um, taking as a given that we are interconnected and we're all part of the same thing and that um, that is like a kind of fundamental, just the foundation of society kind of the way a healthy body functions, right? Like there's illness sometimes, but hopefully um, the, the white blood cells get together and, and move it along, or if not, like other interventions can happen. But generally speaking, a healthy body is functioning, you know, like the, the different cells and everything, they're just doing their thing. Like this one's doing that thing, this one's doing that thing, that's their thing to do, and they're doing it together. <laughs> so Yes. I love that, Leah. I love it. And I, the, I, I love the taken, I love the wildness. I love the, like, I just picture everybody as, like, as Jimi Hendrix or like <laughs> Jimi Hendrix-esque. And uh, I don't know why they're not, all musicians, huh? But <laughs> Right. They're all, the David, yeah, David Bowie's. There's got to be some David Bowie's for sure. Always. And uh, I loved when you said interconnectedness is a given. It's like when we're just we remember kind of like our who we really are not even like mentally but just when we are who we really are there's like a there's like a natural harm, harmonizing with 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 the rest of the, the the body or the 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 micro body or the great body yeah yeah yep yeah and um Oh, I guess the other thing I would say is it would be a constantly evolving thing. You know, it wouldn't be like a static thing, this world uh, uh, where there's no negative self-talk. There would be a ton of energy and possibility and creativity and um, fun. Siri, you know, grounded fun, but like just expression of life basically. I just realized that I introduced you as punk rock yeah. and we ended up 
talking about the <laughs> whole world being full of yeah. musicians. Yeah, that's a true story. That's and true. Uh, you should know, Leah, that Chris is a uh, musician. Oh, I did not know that. Look yeah, that. former. Look at that. All right. And I looked up the cell photo that you, you mentioned, it? the cell image. It is crazy. Isn't it? I have to use that as the image for this podcast. I it love looks... it. Please do. Yeah, I love it's it like so a... much. It's kind of, it's reminiscent of what's behind you, and but you know times a zillion. Yeah, and a lot less uh, symmetrical. <laughs> right, <laughs> which is a fascinating concept, especially in light of the what you're talking about things being fun and working really well. And yes, um, I I wonder why we don't just rush as fast as we can into a new paradigm where we are doing these kinds of things. Where you know what, and I mean none of us would have the answer maybe necessarily necessarily but well, i have a bit of an answer yeah i think those who have are have, have hoarded resources and are in power do not want to give up same yes. so i think that's why it's not happening um but i mean i i have hope for the future i feel like the kids who are growing up even like you know gen is it gen z at this point mm -hmm. they're i i love how uh I don't know. They're just up for it. You know, they're not, they're not bound, I think, in the same ways that even we are. So I, I have hope. They respond to just authenticity and rawness and genuine humanity, at least in my experience of them. So mine too. Yeah. Mine too. Yeah. I uh, really love Greta Thunberg. Mm -hmm. As an example, um, Leah, anything else? I guess it's actually a question for all three of us. Is there anything else that should be said to complete this conversation? Well, I did want to attribute the quote that I shared earlier. Um, so, like I said, I've been reading Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown, and um, she quotes. Tony Cade Bambara, who said, we must make just and liberated futures irresistible. I love it. Yeah, I have, I, I haven't read that. Um, I think that's the poet in the most recent newsletter. No, oh. um, that's a book. I think you would actually, it would be a great thing to read the emergent strategy, Adrian Marie Brown. I think oh, okay. a lot of it right, because right. she she talks a lot about um, systems in nature and what they can show us about how we might function um, in in groups. I mean, among other things, but yeah. yeah. What what is the full title again? The emergent strategy. Emergent strategy. Just emergent. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I and was going to say it looking through your materials i really love the quotes that you pull out and and focus on i really love the the poetry that you choose and um normally i'm not i'm, I'm a little resistant to poetry so it, it means a lot that, to me that your the poems that you're choosing to share really resonate uh, great well i will say i don't like all poems you know and um i really only share ones that i really like and it's always so fun to find another one and some new thing that I never knew existed, which having to, um, well, I don't have to, choosing to, you know, celebrate National Poetry Month with a poet, poem a day um, really 
required me to dig deeper and learn more and get to know like all kinds of people, poets I never knew existed and there I'm sure are tons more. Um, so it's, but thank you, I'm glad. I'm glad that it impacted you that way and felt like relevant. That's the problem with a lot of poems to me. They don't feel relevant to me or they feel like they're making me feel worse. So I don't need that. Right, yes, exactly. <laughs> well, um, maybe they're, they're coming from that place of separation. Maybe, maybe, I don't Some know. Some of these poems. What were we gonna <laughs> sure. say, Jared? Well, I just wanted to say that uh, I, um, I was just wondering for a second why having a kind self-talk is so important. And I was just um, thinking about the first teaching in the Dhammapada. It's one of the Buddhist books of teachings. And uh, it says that all of our experience stems from the mind. So it just makes a lot of sense to me Oops. that if this is if 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 our mind if we're doing well in our mind then we'll be then we'll be doing well and we'll create from that place it just makes a lot of sense and i just i just wanted to say thank you i really uh i i actually again see the bridge being built now i actually I, and i felt it being built in this conversation and uh so thank you for for coming and um, being yourself, uh, and just, just yeah, a pleasure. Thanks pleasure. for having me. It was yes. super fun. Thank you. Yeah, a real pleasure. And I, I want to read a sort of a wrap up of your current focus. So everybody listening, we've been talking with Leah Sagan Shinraku today. She is the founder of the San Francisco Center for Self-Compassion. You can find the San Francisco Center for Self-Compassion at sfcenterforselfcompassion.com, sfcenterforselfcompassion.com. And Leah is sharing with us why and how she sees self-compassion as revolutionary. She regularly leads groups and trainings at sfcenterforselfcompassion.com, focused on self-compassion and her free monthly self-compassion meditation and practice group has been meeting for over eight years. She studied with Dr. Kristen Neff and Dr. Christopher Germer, who have both been mentioned in this podcast. These are two of the pioneers in the field of self-compassion research and training. And in 2020, Leah launched her own eight-week self-compassion training program called Everyday Self-Compassion, which focuses on helping people develop a daily self-compassion practice so that they can navigate everyday uncertainties with greater calm, creativity, and confidence. And uh, calm is not one of the words we used here, but it's certainly a huge part of um, the way I have felt from engaging in Leah's materials over the last few days. Leah has been meditating regularly for 20 years and practiced residentially at the San Francisco Zen Center along with Jared some years ago. In 2009, she received lay ordination in the lineage of Suzuki Roshi. And you can find Leah Sagan Shinraku one more time at sfcenterforselfcompassion.com or the Instagram account that I highly recommend, which is at sfcenterforselfcompassion. And thank you again, Leah, for, for your time and, and for all your work and, and your insights and for sharing stuff with us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here with y'all.
my monkey mind. I wanna be a monkey.